Welcome to the Bounty Zero X podcast. I'm your host, Angelo Adam, founder and CEO of Bounty Zero X. Bounty Zero X is a decentralized bounty hunting network powered by the BNTY token. Today is May 22nd, 2018, and my guest on the show is Mark Van Roon, CEO and co-founder of Abacus Exchange. Mark is a serial inventor and product developer with over 20 years experience in banking and digital banking. He founded Midpoint, formerly by FX LTD, foreign exchange service delivery firm. He holds a U.S. patent trademark office patent for a multi-party matching algorithm and was also global head of product development for RBC Dexia IS an international custodian bank. Since 2013, he's also focused his attention on digital value and data transfer. Mark is um, developing Abacus, which is a universal decentralized exchange, which will allow trading and exchange of any asset, anywhere, anytime. The ICO is upcoming, and we're excited to have him on the show to talk about the launch of the platform. So welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Angelo. I appreciate it. So we're really excited about your product and are really happy to have you on the show to discuss it because it's a unique and extremely useful tool in this space. And it really leverages some of the decentralized blockchain technology to enable a lot of new types of data transfer between parties on an exchange, which up until now haven't really been feasible and haven't really been explored. So your product is launching very soon. And so why don't you just give us a quick update on the product and where you guys are in terms of development? Yeah, first we'll talk a little bit about the product. What we did is we looked at traditional assets and imagine selling your house. And imagine if you sold your house, you had to move that house to the location of the new owner. You wouldn't be selling a lot of houses. It just wouldn't happen, right? So what we did is we looked at the assignment of ownership and we said, well, why are we moving assets around when we can just reassign ownership? And that's the blockchain and that's Abacus. And that's that's the power of the product itself. Now, as we're moving forward, you had uh, you had mentioned Angelo about where we are in the development. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So what we are is, is come up on uh, you know the beginning of June we'll have an MVP, and then come up on June thirtieth we should have our alpha launch. So it's very exciting time for us. We're doing a lot of testing, and I've had the, a sneak preview at the masks, of course, and I love them. So. The Abacus Exchange will be, what type of assets will be immediately tradable? Uh, what would be the first category of assets that will be tradable? Are we talking like, is this just a, a cryptocurrency exchange like many of the other ones? And how does it differentiate itself from your Binance or Huobi or OK Exchange that trade ERC-20 and other cryptocurrencies? Yeah, so the Abacus Exchange, you can trade any asset. So it could be equity, it could be bonds, it could be art. We're creating the community structure to allow an inclusion of our community so that people can actually post and list their assets as long as they do it to the Abacus protocol. 
that's that's certainly going to drive the compliance, right? One of the things that I think is the big distinguishing factor, apart from the fact that we do traditional assets as well, is the fact that we understand the importance of regulation and compliance. It's absolutely critical. If you want to make a, a product that's going to be a mainstream product, you have to have and cater to those requirements as well. And I mean, one of the things that I use as, as a typical example is, If my Aunt Martha has something that's a crypto or has a security like Microsoft, you can't really say to Aunt Martha, you've, you've lost your, your Microsoft because you lost your private keys. There's no way that the SEC or for that matter, any regulatory body would permit that. So we have to take into consideration those items. And because of that, we, we view ourselves more as a, hybrid exchange, right? One where portions, and I mean, if you look at, at decentralized initiatives, they're fundamentally creating standing order systems. They're not really creating exchanges, right? What we're doing is creating an exchange with proper price discovery, with, with proper order management, with proper matching and settlement reporting, and of course, catering to the regulatory bodies in tandem with that. And to clarify, you're based in which country? Well, we're, we do the development of the United States. So, and, and Abacus will launch in the United States. The Abacus Exchange Inc. is, uh, is incorporated in Panama. And the reason it's incorporated in Panama is tax efficacy for our investors. And so you're obviously taking a lot of time to make sure that you're fully compliant in all of the jurisdictions in which you'll be operating in. And so which jurisdictions will you be operating in immediately? Well, we're launching first in the United States. I mean, if we can can get um, obviously SEC approval in the United States, that is a big stepping stone to other jurisdictions. Then we'll follow that with uh, with Ireland, which puts us uh, into the EU, and we'll follow that with the United Kingdom and then Far East. And when a user registers on the platform and wants to trade on the exchange, what type of process will be required for them to register? Oh, they'll have to go through the the full AML KYC process. I mean, we'll have to vet those customers and, and it's a rigorous process, but it's worth it because ultimately it protects the investor. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So they're going to show passport ID, register, and then once they register, Correct. they'll have in front of them an interface similar. Will it be similar to the interface on the current other Exchange platforms in this space, or will it be how will it be different? Yeah, we're 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 not reinventing the wheel on on something that works reasonably effectively. So when when we took a look at at how we were going to structure, we've got a couple of uh, new twists and turns. Right, ultimately we're we're already building out the concept of using Alexa to actually grab order pairs on your behalf. So. There's going to be some interesting things coming down the pipe, no doubt. But for the most part, the initial offering is going to be a very basic, I, I'm looking to purchase this and I have this. And it's a very, very simple mask, not confusing at all. And so when you say that you're going to be integrating with Amazon's Alexa, is that part yeah. of it? Is that a joke or are you finding No, no. We're, 
for working on it. Absolutely. I think it's an absolutely fascinating. One of the things I had said a number of, uh, well, probably about a year and a half ago odd was, you know what? We should actually build the system so that we can operate it with emojis. And eventually that's exactly where I believe all of this will be going. Right. So we're looking in that direction as well, just to simplify the process and make it quicker. When you're on your mobile phone, for example, right, you don't have a lot of real estate. So it's a lot easier using emojis as long as they're clearly defined and as long as they're compliant. So the assets that will be initially tradable on the exchange, will will it be tokens or tokenized or tokenized assets? That's a great question. It's it's a tokenization process. And that way we can give T0 settlement, right? We can protect the client's asset. The client has full control over their assets. One thing I want to make very clear is that we can't touch the client's wallet. The client has control full control of their wallet. The client also has full control over the assets that they're holding in inventory. So Abacus is solely an operator. We have no conflict of interest and no ax to grind. All we're doing is building the appropriate matching engine that allows the decentralized exchange of assets. And so when company comes to you and says, you know, we have this tokenized asset and we'd like to add it listed on your exchange, you would you know, have a, a listing process, which you go to where they submit an application and Correct. they verify that, you know, the asset meets various requirements and then it's added to the exchange for trade. Correct. Correct. Now, coming out of the gate, what we have is something called a fulfilled by abacus and fulfilled by abacus fundamentally performs that function on behalf of the client. If the client doesn't wish to do that themselves, right, they can certainly submit the asset to our purveyors. And that will be done in-house by your team? No, it's actually arm's length. The, the process itself will, will occur with our team, but the actual custody, the holding of the asset is always arm's length away from the exchange. The exchange can never touch an asset. And so that would be a, an additional service that you're offering for, because I, I would assume that there's really no companies that really specialize in doing this type of transaction. No. So, so it makes sense for you guys to offer that service, at least initially, until the firms could outsource, it could, you could outsource that work too. Yeah, of course. Of course. I mean, coming out of the gate, it's the same, the same as any startup, right? What we're doing is we're building out our processes, right? We're building out our methodology to provide the most efficient tool for our clients. And of course, the client is first. The client's first with respect to asset security. The client's first with respect to utility. These are the things that we're trying to accomplish on their behalf to make, to take a lot of the pain away. I mean, one of the, the, the things that I think that I think when we're talking about the problems that we're solving, apart from the reassignment uh, issue and not having to transfer an asset around, we're solving a lot of problems for clients in in the areas of, of liquidity and accessibility in the area of cost and transparency and most importantly, security. Right. I mean, no matter what. 
you know, it's like what I said to you about my Aunt Martha. My Aunt Martha can't lose her Microsoft. There's no way that the SEC would allow it. So what we have to do is we have to create the user tools to make sure that Aunt Martha is safe and secure. So talk to me about the Abacus token and what role that plays in the ecosystem. The Abacus token, the ABCS token, actually performs two functions. It performs the function of being a utility token. So people would purchase that token so that they can actually trade on the exchange. It becomes part of the the, the structure of doing any trade. And then the second thing that it does is it provides an avenue to liquidity. So, you know, if a client, because structurally, the way that, that we'll set up the exchange is a, it's going to be if if I have Google and I want a different asset, I can actually create a stream of assets that I would like to purchase if I can't get the counter asset that I'm looking for. Right. And ABCS tokens provides a liquidity avenue in that string, in that ladder. Yeah, that reminds me at a high level view of the Bancor system. Are you familiar with that? And yes. would you say that in some ways it's similar to that or with some differences, of course? The Bancor system is more geared to crypto liquidity. I think that it would be very, very challenging for them to do traditional liquidity because of the way that securities move. Well, cryptos may not necessarily move in exactly the same way and certainly based upon their their algorithm, I don't believe that it can allow the sharp spikes that would occur in the standard trading model. We had our we had our analysts take a look and and kind of rip the uh, the algorithm apart. It would probably be better if he was to speak to it. Yeah. So I guess it's to flatten out that. Correct. And that'd be with all of the leverage. And I was we get off the record. I was speaking to another exchange that is managing this type of leveraged trading and in mm-hmm. a decentralized fashion. And it it'd be interesting to see like how adding a component of leverage into any ERC-20 token on a decentralized exchange. So they have these like decentralized exchanges could lead to a lot of interesting trading behavior because you're going to be trying to hit stops and doing that with a decentralized exchange is, you know, even more tricky because of everything involved with the order flow and the order book because decentralized exchanges are inherently a lot slower in that the matching of the orders. So could create a lot of a backlog of, of orders and get people trading systems can be really interesting and complex with all of the feedback loops that happen in them. And so Absolutely. when you make them decentralized, it creates a lot of interesting type of scenarios. Yeah. And, and it's important to know Angelo as well, that, that fully decentralized is more of a standing order system than it is really an exchange In exchange. You want to be able to go in and, and get fulfillment. And a decentralized system, to your point, it operates a lot slower. Over and above that, where exactly is the order management taking place? If, you, if you're putting the order management on the blockchain itself, it's a very inefficient way of managing order flow. So you wouldn't necessarily get active traders operating that way. They would want more instantaneous order management plus over and above that you've got the issues of 
a variety of different orders. We'll have iceberg orders and so on. So when you get the big orders, you have to cater to the needs of the client. So in our world, right, the client is first and we decentralize what we can decentralize, right? And certain things aren't efficient decentralized. Price discovery is another one. Right. You're not really doing price discovery across the blockchain. So anyone who's who's saying, well, yeah, you know, you're doing price discovery in that manner. It's not really fully decentralized. None of them are. That's a good point. I wanted to ask you, will this be will first release of the Abacus exchange be a, a fiat to crypto exchange or just crypto to crypto? Well, it's going to be we'll, we'll have physical assets, traditional securities, which will be tokenized and available for trade, right? So it's it's fundamentally tokenized assets, crypto assets, and cryptocurrencies. And if you think about things like artwork, I mean, we won't start with art or we won't start with real estate. We'll start with things that are highly liquid to prove out the the exchange itself and the methodology. So the trading pairs would be, you know, highly liquid trading pairs like Ethereum or Bitcoin or Litecoin, and they would be trade tradable against the other tokenized assets that would be added. And these yeah. tokenized ad- assets would be the new component that aren't isn't currently tradable on other exchanges, and it would be tradable against these assets like Ethereum, Bitcoin. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, what's very interesting and something that hasn't really been talked about in the crypto community is the management of all of these chains. We we see a future where there'll be blockchain facilitated straight through processing. So that's a that's a mouthful. Okay, but for example, right now, if you want to trade an ERC-20 token for a NEM mosaic, how exactly are you doing that? It's not a particularly efficient process, right? So, and over and above that, there's going to be a litany of tokens that are available. So you'll have tokens that are for value transfer. You'll have tokens that are for AML, KYC, or proof of identity, or proof of of asset, proof of existence, right? So there'll be a proof of of compliance. You'll have credit bureau. There's going to be, I think, a proliferation of these types of tokens. And I could see in the future a hundred thousand, a couple of hundred thousand, maybe, maybe in the millions when it comes to chains. And there hasn't been a great deal of discussion about how to manage that. And so what we did is we attacked that problem as well, right? So on one front, we have the value transfer of, for example, a Microsoft to British Telecom directly in one hop. But then over and above that, we have all of these underlying tokens. Now, when you think about a value transfer that's straight through processing today, there's a lot of things that happen in the background that a client doesn't see. Well, if we want to do it on a decentralized basis, those things need to be apparent. And if I'm looking at trading one asset for another, it may require 10 or 12 additional utility tokens or chains that get involved in the process. Now, we all know from a client perspective that they don't want to actually hold 
this many tokens in their wallet in order for them to do a transaction. So we're building the engine that actually manages those relationships. And we anticipate that they'll be managed via a series of smart contracts. Yeah, so it's in a way creating this network of various tokens that are all interconnected. And so Mm -hmm. if you want to trade one asset against another asset, you have to go through an intermediary token. And so what you're saying is that you know, you could go through a variety of different intermediary tokens. And would that be if it's like a large volume order or because of the liquidity it, problem? It could be it could be any style of order fundamentally. I mean, if you think about it, say, for example, someone lists a, a Picasso and monetizes a Picasso. Right. So ultimately, they're they're monetizing and splitting up this Picasso into a variety of investable pieces. Now, one of the first things you'll ask is going to be, well, where is where is that Picasso? How do I know it's real? There's a blockchain. Okay. how do I know that the person who's holding it is real? There's a blockchain. Right. And and a token. How do I know that it's compliant? Well, there's a blockchain. (laughs) You see? So what happens is with with one transaction, one value transfer, you can have a multitude of blockchains. And it may be that they're all different blockchains providing different services or they're in different jurisdictions. And you know what happens with technology. It starts out with a proliferation and then a consolidation. So what we want to do is we want to make sure that we're accommodating throughout that entire transaction lifecycle. And in order to do that, we can't expect our clients to have to hold 10 or 15 tokens for every value transfer that they want to do. And I think that that's an important distinction between what we're doing and and what others are doing. So what else would be an important topic for us to discuss now? Uh, Let's see. Token event. (laughs) <laughs> we're, yeah. we're moving rapidly towards our June 15th uh, token event. So again, it's it's the idea is behind building out that community, right, on a grassroots basis. And then, of course, enhancing that community by milestone delivery of our products. So when the token sale launches, it's going to be open and Will the participants in the token sale need to undergo a KYC in order to participate in the uh, ICO? Absolutely. Absolutely. There is uh, obviously thresholds, but there is a KYC process. We think it's an important tool to have, and we are going to be going live in the United States and if we're going live in the United States, the last thing we want to be is uh, non-compliant. Mm-hmm. Okay. And is, okay. There, is there a whitelist that uh, users need to uh, sign up to on, or it, will it be open to anyone? It it uh, is open. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, Angelo. It is open to anyone, right? But you can apply now and register now at, at token.abacusexchange.com. And that sounds great. So yeah. what jurisdictions will be allowed to purchase any or are there some off limits? So if I'm a citizen in a certain country, will I not be able to participate? Yeah, this is uh, this is always a, a dicey area, right? One of the challenges and one of the things that we believed when we when we set off down the path of abacus 
about three years ago, right? We realized that tokenizing an asset was fundamentally creating a security. And so we believed that we were creating securities even before that debate uh, came to light with the SEC in the last year. So we've gone down the path of looking at our regulatory and compliance model exactly in that light. We expect that we will need to have a, a some form of regulation or compliance, whether it's UCC or SEC or CFTC. And because of that, we didn't want to issue tokens in the United States without having gone through that process internally. Now, that process internally takes a, a, a substantial amount of time in order to, to get an appropriate exemption. So what we've done is we've made the United States off limits. Great. So if you're not in the United States, then you most likely can participate? Correct. So should we talk some more about the types of assets or what other areas do you think that people would like to hear about? I think that they probably like to hear about uh, maybe the liquidity uh, and, and what we're doing there. One of the things I think that's that's highly beneficial, we structured the exchange so that we could do something called indirect trading. Right. Indirect trading, rather than most transactions occur in their binary, you're going from Microsoft to U.S. dollars and from U.S. dollars to Microsoft. Right. With our exchange, you're going from Microsoft directly to British Telecom. So there's a lot of benefits to that. One of the benefits, of course, being that we cut out the foreign exchange price at the midpoint price. So the client saves an enormous amount of money. But more than that is the concept of liquidity. Right. For example, how many people would be going from Microsoft to British Telecom at any given point in time? I don't know that. What I do know is that you may have a transaction Microsoft to Google and Google to British Telecom and British Telecom back to Microsoft. That's what we've built. We've built it in a way that looks at what a client's requirements are and can construct a transaction that meets their desires. So it's a very, very interesting way of managing liquidity and different than I believe any other exchange out there. Yeah, so that that is interesting. So if a user wants to buy Ethereum or uh, an ERC-20 token and they only and they want to exchange it with another ERC-20 token, they don't need to first go through a highly liquid. So how do you guys manage that? So how are you able to structure your trading system? Are you just connecting buyers and sellers who hold those two assets? So you're having an unlimited number of trading pairs. And how do you manage to like have liquidity with that type of a situation? Because as you said, you don't know, there aren't many people probably who want to trade between two illiquid assets directly. We have internal. So, so first is, is we use neural pathways essentially. And Vince is better to speak to this than me. He's probably going to think that I butchered his explanation. But but in any event, what we do is we seek the most liquid assets and they become, become the liquid asset pool. And that allows us to create these connections to less liquid assets. And that's a, a big plus. And over and above that, any time that there's any spillover, we can go out to to alternate uh uh, liquidity avenues, and we've already set many of them up in order to fulfill the balance of, of the requirement for the client. 
And we do that uniformly. They don't see it. So specifically, is there an order? So the order book between two trading pairs or, or coins that are not linked directly, but go through a third party. How does that order book function if there are no direct buyers or sellers on on each side of it to yeah. come to a price? Is that what you're saying? Or, or is it-, it, 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 it shows. I mean, what we do is we expose the order to the client. It's a very, very interesting way of, of managing uh, order flow. Because ultimately, if you've got an intermediary asset, we call them gateway assets, right? That provide liquidity. We leverage that, but we leverage it to the, to the requirements, to the desires of each of the clients in that relationship. So obviously, if there's a client who is trading outside of a particular uh, band, then they may not participate until they actually achieve the requirements, the criteria for them to, to be a part of a transaction. Does that make sense? So it's an opt-in type of situation? We're well, opt-in, opt-in to this uh, I wouldn't, like private yeah. agreement where with other third parties or with other parties? No, I think maybe I'm confusing uh, the, the issue a little bit, Angelo. What I'm saying is, is a client has their trading criteria that they build into their order. And only when that trading criteria is met does an order get consummated. Okay. Okay? So whether they're trading directly or indirectly, it's always geared to their specific requirements, their specific parameters for a transaction. And, but there has to be a, a, a counterparty in that that agrees Absolutely. to that offer or that term. So it's just a, a bid or an offer and it's out. It's on a, on a and, book and then someone takes that. Yeah. There may be things like a limit that needs to be hit first, for example. I mean, that's and if of if, of course, there's a challenge with anything in the in the beginning, we expect that there's going to be a lot of one asset transactions because, you know, we're just starting out. So we have to build the base of underlying assets. We have to build the base of our community. And those are our two primary objectives. Right. But as and of course, we do still have a fulfillment uh, avenue for that client. Regardless, we will always have a way for them to purchase what they need to purchase. That's, I think, probably one of the the best uh, components of liquidity, because it's really fundamentally a ladder. We look in, internally, right? Then we reach out and get them what they need. So who do you think the, the, the clients, so it seems like the way that you're referring to your, your traders on the platform who are using it seems more of like a, a trading, a person who's trading on the platform who has like very specific requirements and not like your typical user uh, on a normal exchange who just wants to buy and sell an asset. It seems like this is more of like a really custom tailored type of situation where, you know, a user has uh, or a trader has a large amount of X and they want to buy Y and they don't want to just exchange it directly with that other you know, liquid asset like the like Ethereum. So, can you comment on that? Like, what type of, I guess, people would be using this? That that is a that's a great question. First of all, 
at the exchange level, we solve a number of problems. And I mean, right now, if you look at the traditional markets, right, there's a lot of gaming, there's a lot of preferential treatment. If you look at high frequency trading, and then if you look at the crypto market, there's a, a litany of of conflicts of interest where the exchange is the prize is the broker dealer they're the custodian they're the settlement agent they're at times the counterparty right so what we did is we looked at at how we could make that better and part of making it better was increasing accessibility and that means that our exchange is good for the individual as it is for the trader And in that way, we don't have preferential treatment for one over the other. Okay. So do you want to talk uh, just briefly about the token and the the, the two use cases? The first is use for trading. And then the second is for liquidity. Do you want to briefly, should we go into detail on that or should we just, (laughs) is that? We can we can do that. I mean, you know, fundamentally what's happening inside of the Abacus Exchange is that we're we're bringing together all these series of blockchains that are adding to a transaction. And of course, as I had said earlier, right, in the case of a client, they don't want to hold if they've got 10 securities, they don't want to hold 200 tokens. I mean, that would just be not practical if they had to pay for each component of a transaction out of their wallet in that fashion. It just isn't, it's not feasible, right? No client would want to use that. So what we do is the Abacus, the ABCS token is designed. The whole principle of it is to make it so it's the exchangeable token for all of these other tokens, Right. So that when it comes to the transaction lifecycle, it's seamless for the client. All they all they need to see is that they're going from Microsoft to gold or they're going from gold to Bitcoin. So that's one that's one component of it. Sorry. And so they need to have a certain number of the ABCS tokens in order to right. do that transaction. And then does do they retain that after the trade or is is it uh, so they. It's 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 a portion of of operating the transaction because we obviously have to pay all of the sub chains and all of the gas for any of the chains that that uh, value transfer is taking place on. So if you're if you have a bigger trade, then you need more of the tokens. No, no. It's like the tokens is a fee based model. So fundamentally, what's going to happen is, is a transaction takes place, it gets consummated, there's a fee that's attached to it. And if the client doesn't have enough ABCS tokens, we don't stop his trade. We make sure that he gets them. Okay. So we're trying to make trading simple again. And when you, will there be a, an order book? Like what will the interface be? So when would, a, would you be putting in bids and offers for these? pairs which you wouldn't be able to directly trade with so as a user of the platform uh you would put in like a bid to buy x and you have y and this would be the only place where you could yeah uh, you have to remember yeah yeah you have to remember angelo that that we're that we're the matching engine right so we will have our asset purveyors who will be the counterparties to transactions if there's a, a lack of liquidity 
we can't actually perform that role because we would be in a conflict of interest. And I mean, it's the same thing that I just said about the crypto exchanges. At times, they're participating in transactions in ways that are at best a conflict of interest and at worst a lack of, of ethics. Uh, you may have mentioned this earlier as far as the types of assets that will be traded on the exchange. So will you, so yeah. there's this trend now with like securities tokens that are like, there's a certain, some exchanges that are change trading. Uh, like I think T zero is one where they just, it's an exchange only for, you know, cryptocurrency securities that have, you know, gone mm-hmm. through this process. So do you plan oh. to only trade certain types of assets? So will, for example, you be accepting cryptocurrencies on your exchange that are, you know, holding an ICO or, that are pre-existing and that are just ERC-20 tokens? And will this be an exchange for only like Ethereum-based ERC-20 tokens? Or can you comment on that aspect? First, in the context of, of what's permissible, one of the key things is proof of asset. And that one of the challenges with a lot of utility tokens is that they can conjure up assets as they see fit, which it doesn't provide or afford the client comfort in knowing that that token or asset may disappear at any given point in time. So our criteria at the, in the very, very base case is that we can have proof of asset and proof of assets absolutely critical, right? So in the context of, of what types of assets, we'll start with, as I said, with, with uh, traditional liquid equities, bonds and the like, gold, right? And then things like, like the uh, Ethereum, the Ether, right? Bitcoin and the like. And where we feel comfortable, i.e. that the token itself, because we're not limiting the client in terms of what they can and cannot do, except insofar as the token needs to have proper backing. It needs to have a proper protocol around it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's for us, it's like we don't want to say to a client, no, you can't buy this or you can't buy that. That's not our role. But our role is to make sure that we, we maintain the integrity of our exchange. So the challenge, of course, with with uh, cloning and and phishing and fraud is that it can damage our reputation. So we want only the best NEM mosaics and the best ERC-20s and the best cryptocurrencies. We don't want anything where there's the potential for fraud or the potential for uh, malfeasance. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really great decision. And that's the only way, that's the only option to do it. But that's a rigorous process and would limit somewhat the number of tokens that could be tradable. So, so let's take an equity. So let's say you like a commonly traded equity like Google. Mm -hmm. Um, what would that process look like of making that a tradable cryptocurrency? That's our secret sauce, Angelo. Okay. No, no. <laughs> Tokenizing Google in, a, in and of itself requires some form of custody. While Google's not presently on the blockchain, I would anticipate that they will be on the blockchain within the next three to five years, right? During that 
that time, what we would do is we would actually place that Google in custody in a trust structure to ensure that we're arm's length away from that particular asset. It's actually the client that does that. And we just provide the tools to get him there. And then, of course, once it's tokenized, it goes into their wallet and they're free to trade it for whatever they want. Now, in, in behind all of this is the important portion of corporate actions and asset servicing. And we've got partners in the United States that because that's our launching pad. We've got partners there who will manage that on our behalf. So if fundamentally what will happen is, is if Google gets a dividend, what we would do is we would airdrop that into the wallet of the client. Right. All of that's transparent. Right. And from a the perspective of actually auditing, they'll be able to audit on the blockchain. They'll be able to audit within Abacus itself and they'll be able to audit via the uh, the custodian. Yeah, I'm glad we touched on this component because it seems like this is a pretty key aspect and one of the unique sides of what this is going to facilitate. So uh, just to play out how this looks a little bit for our listeners. So let's say a holder of uh, uh, quite a, a significant sum of Google shares, let's say $10 million worth of Google shares, mm-hmm. takes that and they say, I want to, so they would be a private owner or institutional owner of mm-hmm. a basket of various stocks. And they come to you and say, okay, we want to take all of these and we want to tokenize these so that for each share, it, there will be an equivalent token for this mm-hmm. share. And then all of these, to- all of these shares will be separated and held in custody of, uh, you know, a third party. Mm-hmm. And they will be immediately redeemable. The token right. will be immediately redeemable for that share. And then yeah, so, so then you move these, so you have these token, the, the stocks held by a third party tokenized and then tradable for Ethereum or Bitcoin. So someone with Ethereum can then Exchange their Ethereum for for the for a share of the stock, essentially. So right. they own the the tokenized version of that stock. Absolutely, and of course they've got full right of ownership for the underlying as well. So if they want to collapse that and take their Google share, then they can go about doing that. So what what we're doing is we're creating a reassignment. I think I said it kind of at the beginning. We don't move the house when we sell it, right? We just change the ownership. Well, that's fundamentally what we're doing inside of the exchange, which gives us a, a very unique, unique quality because it means that we can save clients an awful lot of money, right? We're, we're in the traditional world. They've been moving assets around from one custodian to another via broker dealers and broker dealer relationships within Abacus, they're fundamentally static. So we, we leave the assets where they are. We reassign ownership and whoever is the owner of record by, by virtue of their holding, they get to redeem that security if that's what they wish to do. They more, more often than not, they're not interested in taking the security. They're more interested in taking their, uh, their PL, right? But, but that really is evidence of the fact that it is a fully tokenized asset and fully supported. So once that asset is tokenized, it can be, uh, freely exchanged, um, 
and then how do you then so in order to redeem it at that stage you would then have to the someone who has purchased it third hand, third uh second hand through a chain of transactions who comes mm-hmm. to own the token and they want when they want to redeem it they come to the the, the owner uh, the the person who holds the the party that holds the the asset in custody and they give them the token and say i would like Correct. to exchange it for the they would just simply push an order into the abacus exchange and that order would be consummated and and filled on their behalf so a very very simple process they don't have to hunt for liquidity they just need to go to the exchange and we'll know because we know every asset and and every mnemonic so does the abacus exchange support the security to token transaction so when a user wants to redeem their token for the actual underlying asset itself or or no or is that done it's 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 all done those those portions where there's somebody or someone that is touching an asset it's always done by a third party we wanted to make sure that the operator abacus could never be in a conflict of interest. So because of that, we've got licensed professionals who are part of the the financial system and the jurisdictions in which we're operating. And that's what they do. So rather than try and do that on their behalf, right, we said, this is the way that we want to operate it. We want to operate it so that we're never touching the asset. And structurally, it makes the most sense because it keeps us out of a conflict of interest. Then we're just doing our job as a matching and settlement engine. Yeah. So this is kind of a, a simple question, but let's just ask it anyway. So for assets like a house, like you said, where there's a partial ownership of the asset, which can then be tokenized. So let's say you have a deed to a house. And you can split the deed amongst two people. So each have 50% ownership. One of them tokenizes that. And then do, so does the issuer of the coin can choose how many tokens they want to issue for each like share, let's say, or each portion of, of that asset. So they can break it down into indefinite or into many smaller pieces. So you can have one share of let's say you have 50% ownership of the house, you have a a deed for that. And then you tokenize that deed of 50% ownership. And then you can make that 50% ownership equivalent to any number of tokens uh, for that uh, asset, for that portion of that asset. Is that correct? Yeah, we anticipate that. You started with one of the more difficult use cases, Angelo. So I'm going to give you a little slap on your hand there (laughs) because there's a lot of things with the house in terms of documentation, in terms of of the interplay of government in that particular process, right? So it, it really does is dictated by what the rights of the homeowner in that particular case can and can't do. And we're always interested in managing this so that we're jurisdictionally compliant. So if if the house was going to be tokenized by your example, right, then we would anticipate that the whole house would be tokenized, 
right? That's a portion that I think splitting ownership within a single deed, that's, that's a challenge. So we, we would have to explore that further. There's no doubt. Yeah. I mean, I would guess that, you know, this process would become standardized, right? And so you'd have Absolutely. like a standardization of, so you could, you know, manage them in, in large quantities and know Correct. what each them entitles you to. So you don't have to take them on a case by case basis to analyze what each asset entitles the owner to. It'll probably be like a right. standardized process. That- yeah. And it makes sense because one of the things, if you take something even as simple as the gold market, right? One of the challenges of the gold market is there's so many different flavors. So if JP Morgan, for example, is putting out a particular gold product and somebody else has got another, you know, the South African Rand or the, the Canadian Maple Leaf, which is very near and dear to my heart. Um, if you've got those types of products, they're going to have to manifest themselves in a slightly different way, right? Because you don't want each purveyor necessarily to have, I've got my my 10 or 100 or 1,000 Canadian maple leaves, and they're not fungible with other Canadian maple leaves. So, so the idea of fungibility is what we're driving towards, right? And the, of obviously, the more fungible, the easier it is to trade. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. But there's, you know, that's not an easy task. There's a lot of challenges doing that yes. because of all the different jurisdictions and with gold. It's a little bit easier than it is for physical assets because they vary so much in, in term. Uh, yeah, I, I would agree. And and again, get kind of getting back to something that's kind of a base case gold, right? Even the location that it's held will cause it to have a premium or discount. So gold in Switzerland may be at a premium to gold in New York, for example. Mm. Yeah, okay. that, so, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so that's where you get kind of a nuanced difference in in the traded pair, right? And it's more driven by the underlying characteristics of the asset. We drove all of this from the asset out. We didn't start at the blockchain. We started at how assets are managed, Right. And really, fundamentally, you've got two choices. You're either going to manage it yourself and, and custody yourself or you're going to have someone else do it for you. And because of that, right, where it's held may also play a part in the decision to purchase or or sell. And as an example, right, if you were holding Bear Stearns in 2008, <laughs> it's like you were probably looking to get out of it. Right. And where it was held really didn't make a difference. But if you're looking at something like gold, where holding it in Switzerland may may be beneficial to holding it in the United States on a tax basis, for example, then it makes sense to have a nuanced difference. And so we have these areas that are prime and that will be the first types of uh, so stocks comes to mind as the equities, bonds, you know, Absolutely. highly liquid already fairly institutionalized, standardized. What are yeah. some of the properties of some of the assets that would be most easily tokenized and then traded? And then what are some of the more like corner cases that are going to eventually become 
tokenized, but maybe not initially. And but well, I, I think the, the obvious ones are the ones that you've kind of twigged on. Precious metals is relatively straightforward. It's nuanced, but it's relatively straightforward. Securities, highly liquid securities, U.S. Treasuries, equities, and the like—they're largely standardized and they're largely exchange-driven. So price discovery is is relatively easy, which is pretty critical. Then when you start moving into more esoteric things like housing and real estate, real estate and investment trusts, those types of things, they have a slightly different characteristic set because price discovery may not necessarily be immediate. So we're looking first for the things where price discovery provides liquidity and liquidity provides the opportunity to trade at a known price. Okay, and then as we move forward, right, then we'll get into some of the more esoteric type of things, art, for example. I mean, I see a huge opportunity in art with uh, with Abacus, right? Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with, I think their name is Mycenaeus, right? And they're doing that type of art exchange. So I don't mind promoting them because obviously there's going to be people inside of that exchange who are going to be interested in in manifesting uh, their their wealth or their value in other products as well so we would happily include them in into the exchange itself so but there are differences right between one and the other and of course anytime that there's a great difference or a custody difference Right. I mean, I, I see a big opportunity with, with oil and LNGs. But the challenge there, of course, is grading and storage and all of those other things. Now, we're not worried about grading and storage. That's not what Abixis does. But obviously, the client, when they're placing an asset like that on the exchange, wants to be sensitive to the things that are going to impact the underlying price and the underlying marketability of that particular product. So that would be one where there's a great deal of care placed in how that exchanges or how that asset is placed on the exchange. Are there any inherent regulatory rules that you've come across and or challenges that that say you know full stop these assets can be owned but they can't then be tokenized and traded on third party exchanges because these are highly regulated types of like bonds you know treasuries commodities you know, securities these are all have a lot of regulatory you know baggage associated with them and do the regulatory agencies like allow i mean obviously abacus exchange is developing this product so they do allow it but what are some of these you know fundamental regulatory challenges where you can't just tokenize an asset that's already tradable on regular exchanges even though you may own that asset due to the the fact that there are like ownership limitations to some asset, some types of securities that say, even though you own it, you can't necessarily do anything you want with it. Uh, you know, that's, that is a great question. It really is. And, and, you know, you throw in the tough little curveballs at me today, Angelo. Okay. Um, 
in that particular case, your asset purveyor has to be a compliant party. So think about it like a fund manager, right? Anyone who wants to go through the distribution process to a third party has to be compliant and the product that they develop has to be compliant. So we're administering to those rules and, and you're spot on because that too is a, is a key differentiator. It's a very, very fine line between creating a tokenized product and creating a security as we've seen. So an individual who wants to tokenize a piece of art still will be required to make sure that in his jurisdiction where that's being marketed or sold, and that could be sold globally, right, that that client is compliant in the manner and method by which they're promoting that underlying security. And that's why I call them securities typically. Angelo, for the, exactly that reason. Anytime that you take something and you and you create a financial product around it, in my opinion, right, my humble opinion, it is a tokenized asset and a security. And so what have you found so far? Are there any like inherent roadblocks that have have arisen in this? Uh... We've we've seen at this stage, as long as our purveyors are compliantly providing the underlying security and it's within their purview to do so that there is nothing standing in in our way of of providing the exchange services for those products great well that's good news yeah it is good news (laughs) it's like it's little baby steps as we said uh, angelo one step at a time right yeah, absolutely. And, you yeah. know, that, that would vary in each country, but it probably. would vary. I mean, in certain circumstances, if if a country says, no, that's not something that we permit to be tokenized. I mean, we don't tokenize it. Right. And that's as simple as it is. I mean, it, it is like uh, creating a, a tradable security out of something that's already a tradable security. And then it would need a lot of like regulatory approval which is a long process. And it's, it's great that you asked that and or say that because what we did when we started this and, and the first year was about a year's worth of, of research. And we went to various securities commissions. We went to the FCA, went to Central Bank of Ireland. We went to the GFSC in Guernsey and we described what we were doing to them uh, for them and they they absolutely loved it because the idea that there was audit and the idea that there was asset protection for the client that's those are the messages that resonated with them the fact that you know really in order for anyone to hack abacus what they've got to do is they've got to hack three independent systems Right. It's it becomes a very, very difficult thing. And then over and above that, we have the standard security protocols. Right. If clients sets up an account with us, any of their assets can only go back to to their home home account. So it prevents anyone from redirecting assets that's not part of the, the ecosystem itself. So to your point, that's a that's really, really an important component of of operating any system like this, and of course, having the handshaking with any regulatory body is absolutely critical. 
So we're not quite ready for the SEC. They're a little bit more complex, right? But we're, we soon will be. As soon as we've got our, our alpha model, then we'll push forward with, with that sort of uh, overture. Yeah, well, it seems like you have your hands full uh, for the next uh, <laughs> five, 10, 20 years. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's funny because we've been at this for about three, three and a half years odd. And and I like to tell people, yeah, it's going to take us 10 years to become an overnight sensation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, but there's, but we're on the right path. And, and yeah. every day we, we see more and better. And, uh, and I thank my team for that. It's a very, very strong team and more geared towards trading, trading platforms, right? And less towards, and, and you know, forgive me, I'm going to talk a little bit about this because I think it's important. When we tackled this, we tackled it with a very small team so that we weren't getting distracted away from our net end goal. And our net end goal is to use the investor money that we receive in the most efficient way. And in order to do that, we needed to understand exactly what it was in terms of talent that we had, that we were going to need to bring this to our clients. And, and so it's been a process and it's been a very, very painstaking process to determine exactly what it is when we go through our ICO that we can pull the trigger and say, these are the people that we require to bring this to market in the time that we've suggested. So that's a, that's testament to the diligence of Vince Small, who's our CTO. Yeah. It is you know, important to have a good team together and it seems like you Absolutely. guys have done that and you, all of you have a lot of expertise in this area. So it's not a easy task, but it seems like you guys are situated in a good uh, position to uh, carry it out because you know there's a it's all execution we all know that at this stage Absolutely. you know it's and one thing to have a great idea but, but executing it properly is by far the most important part so glad Absolutely. to see that you know you guys have uh, some talented individuals with expertise and experience in this area mm-hmm. to really carry out this vision which you know makes a lot of sense and is uh, probably what you know the future of this well, at least uh, uh, some percentage of it will will definitely be and you know we wish you all the best of luck in it and we're happy to have you on the podcast to discuss this it's been great thank you angelo yeah i really appreciate your time yeah likewise and so glad we were able to uh you know f- get this uh, recorded and we'll have it live and thanks again for you know bearing with us with the technical difficulties that we've had in the prior attempts to record it <laughs> Not, not a problem at all, Angela. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, and I think this uh, recording went pretty well. I think we covered everything. If there's not anything else, if there's, is there anything else that we should uh, finalize before, I, before we go? I think, I think I could talk about this for hours, right? <laughs> but we don't, unfortunately, have hours. So it's something that's very near and dear, dear to my heart. So it's something that, uh, you know, I, I certainly would enjoy the opportunity of, uh, of catching up with you again and telling you how we're doing. Okay. And so for listeners out there, where can they find out information about Abacus Exchange and the upcoming dates? They can, uh, they can go to uh, token.abacusexchange.com. And all the information that they could want would be their white paper, technical overview, the token presentation itself with the details of, of the token sale, 
right? We've got our Telegram groups, our Facebook groups, our LinkedIn groups, our community manager. He's stellar. His name's Stoyan. And you can connect with him on Telegram and at Stoyan V. And, uh, you know, I think that gives you a few avenues to get there. Medium is another place to look if you're looking for things like our story or, or ideas about why we decided that the Abacus Exchange was relevant and what components of it make it relevant. Great. So thanks again, Mark, for coming on the show. Thank you. And my guest today is Mark Van Roon, CEO and co-founder of Abacus Exchange. Uh, thanks, Mark. Great talking to you. Thank you, Angelo. Cheers. Bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Bounty Zero X podcast. Please remember to subscribe to our podcast below. Check out BountyZeroX.io, the number one bounty hunting platform where you can complete work and earn cryptocurrency. Please consult your professional financial investment and tax advisors before making any investment in initial coin offerings. Bounty Zero X does not provide investment or financial advice and does not endorse or recommend investment in any ICOs advertised on the Bounty Zero X podcast or website.